announcements. I will just throw it out there that the VBS crew is still seeking some volunteers for VBS, and that is coming very quickly. It is uh, the 20th to the 24th. So, um, you know, if you are available those days from 9 a.m. to noon to volunteer to help with the VBS, they are still in need of volunteers. And uh, there is a change. We have come into um, the 21st century. Uh, you may now also register here. It was that you could only do it online. Now you actually can do it with paper and a pen. Man, technology, you know. But with that, you can open in your Bibles tonight to 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. And if anybody needs a Bible, just lift up your hand and the ushers will bring a Bible so that you can follow along in our study tonight. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. The letter of Paul to the Thessalonians covers a period of three distinct times. The past, the present, and the future. In chapters 1, 2, and 3, the Apostle Paul writes to the Thessalonians, recounting and reminding them of their cumbersome past. That is, the time that he spent with them and the events that took place in the formation of the church, and also what took place after he left them, but their cumbersome past. Then, chapter 4, he talks to them about their current habits. And then in chapter 5, he talks to them about their coming hope. And so he deals with the past in chapters 1, 2, and 3, the present in chapter 4, and the future in chapter 5. Now, as we come to chapter 3, we get the third installment in Paul's talking to them about their cumbersome past or the things that they had suffered previously. We left off in chapter 2 and in verse 17 where Paul said to them, he said, But we, brethren, being taken from you for a short time in presence, but not in heart, Endeavored the more abundantly to see your face with great desire. Wherefore, when we would have come unto you, even I, Paul, once and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Are not even ye in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ that is coming? For you are our glory and our joy. And so Paul left off, or he left us in chapter 2, telling them how greatly he longed to be with them. How it was a desire of his heart to return and to come back and to establish them, to comfort them, to explain to them, and just to fellowship with them, to be a part of their lives. But that he was hindered, and he doesn't explain what he means by the fact that Satan hindered him, but that he was restricted and he was not able to come to them. And so that's where we pick up as Paul recounts to them their past. And in chapter 3, he deals with the time period between when he left and when he wrote the letter. And he's seeking to affirm, to comfort, and to encourage them in the midst of the trials and the difficulty that they're facing. And so, in verse 1, he says, Wherefore? When we could no longer forbear, we thought it good to be left at Athens alone. 
Now, if you've been with us, then you know that Paul left Thessalonica and he traveled to the west, 50 miles, to the city of Berea, where he spent a short period of time. And then from there, he traveled 200 miles south to the city of Athens, there in the country of Greece, the Macedonian Peninsula. And so way down in the south, Paul was there in Athens alone, and he had left Timothy and Silas, his travel companions, up there in Berea. And Timothy gets sent back to Thessalonica, and Paul says, I thought it good to be left at Athens alone because it was more needful for Timothy to be with you than he was to be with me. And so that's what he says. We, we thought it good to be left at Athens alone, and he said that we sent Timotheus, our brother and minister of God, and our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ, to establish you and to comfort you concerning your faith. Now this young man, Timothy, was Paul's favorite. Of all of the people that worked with Paul and traveled with Paul and then carried the torch for Paul after his departure, Timothy was by far his favorite. He was from the area of Asia Minor, the cities of Derby and Lystra. And somewhere on Paul's first missionary journey, Timothy heard the gospel, whether it was from Paul directly or just as a result of Paul's ministry, and Timothy was converted to Jesus Christ. And Paul went on his way and continued on his missionary journey, but Timothy stayed in the cities of Derby and Lystra, and he grew in the Lord fantastically in the time that, that he was there by himself. He grew in the Lord and he established for himself a reputation and he built a fruitful, you know, uh, fellowship amongst the people that were there within those cities. So that when Paul came back through the cities of Derby and Lystra six years later, he finds this young man, Timothy, and he hears that this young man has established for himself a good reputation, and he's done good work in the name of Jesus Christ. Derby and Lystra have have a 50 to 60 mile radius between the two of them, and it says that Timothy was well reported of in those two cities. So he was established, he was growing, he was fruitful, and Paul decides during his second trip to take Timothy with him. I want to encourage this young man. I want to invest in his ministry and in his life, and so I'm going to have him travel with me. And Timothy went with Paul and traveled with Paul for two years from the time that Paul took him on until the time that now Timothy is being sent on his first assignment by himself. This is the first time that Timothy is being sent to a place to represent First of all and foremost, the Lord Jesus Christ. And also to represent Paul in the ministry that was started by Paul there in Thessalonica. And so Timothy is sent to the church of Thessalonica. And it's interesting to me to see the qualifications that Paul lists as he gives his endorsement of Timothy to them. What were the things that Paul thought were a priority or an importance to someone who would be sent, to someone who would herald the message and that would rightly represent the name of Jesus Christ. First of all, he says that he is a brother. 
that Timothy is a brother, that before anything else, before he was a gifted communicator or someone who had administrative talent or the ability to, you know, organize or run a church, before any of that, he was just a brother. He was just one of everybody else. He wasn't above the other people there in the church or more advanced or in some way ascended in a way where he would pontificate and, you know, tell people what to do and give people a sense of intimidation because of his giftedness or his ability or his title or any of that. But he was just simply a brother, just someone who who was one of them going through the same things that they're going through. Having the same struggles, having the same doubts, the same tendency to fear, the same weaknesses, the same struggles in the flesh, the same, you know, breakdowns where one day you're doing great with the Lord, but then something can happen and and you completely blow it, you know. And he was just one of them. Paul says he's a brother. It's amazing to me the number of people that want to be in the ministry, but yet they don't want to be a brother. They want to be a father. They want to be over the congregation. They want to showcase their talents and their abilities. They want to pontificate and command and demand respect with their presence. But yet they're not willing to be a brother, to just be one of the people. Timothy was a brother. The second thing that Paul says about Timothy is that he's also a minister. The word minister means servant or slave is that that was the kind of person that Timothy was. He wasn't this kind of minister that thought, well, I'm a minister, therefore you should serve me. I should be given a discount at the local bookstore, and I should get my gas for free, and you know, and all, all the kinds of perks, you know, a free car wash or whatever, because I'm a minister, you know, and I've got the sticker on the back of my car, and I can always park there in the front of the hospital. I don't, you know, the ambulance, they can find a place, you know, I'm clergy, you know, so I'll, I'll park there, you know, you know. But no, he was a minister, he was a servant, he was a person who served. It's interesting that Jesus said that the greatest among you, if you want to be great in the kingdom, the greatest among you will be the servant of all. Now, that was not a proverb that Jesus was simply saying, a statement or something that he would hope to see. But if Jesus says that, it goes further than a proverb and a statement. It's actually a law. Just like gravity. What goes up must come down. The law of God, the way things work in the kingdom of God, is that the greatest is to be the servant. And it's amazing to me that Jesus was the prime example of that. It says that he made himself of no reputation. He lived and moved as a servant. He was a servant. He washed feet. He took the lowly place. When he would do something great, he would command, shh, don't say anything. That's not my purpose to have my name spread abroad because of the miracles that I'm doing. And he lived to serve. And yet a man who made himself of no reputation and that was motivated to just serve and take the lowly place, think about it. He accomplished more in his lifetime than anybody that's ever lived before or since, a man of no reputation. The Bible says that he's given a name that is exalted high above the heavens, far above every name. That's a man of no reputation, the prime example. He didn't condemn the desire to be great, but he told us that the way to do it would be to serve, to be a servant. A servant is someone who's willing to serve. That means to do whatever needs to be done. It doesn't matter whether it's in line with Timothy's gifts or not. 
It doesn't matter if he felt like that was his strength to do what Paul was sending him to do. He was going to do what needed to be done. That's what it means to be a servant. He was a servant. And Paul said, because he's a servant, I want to send him because that's going to be the right kind of man that will represent the name of Jesus Christ, a servant. And then the third qualification, he says, is a fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ. That would speak to us about the practical things of the gospel, preaching the message, teaching the word of God, doing the work of an evangelist, as Paul commanded Timothy to do, and all of those outward things that usually become the motivation for why someone gets into the ministry. I want to preach. I want to teach. I want to showcase my abilities and the things that I can do and and, and my zeal and my passion and the way that I can communicate. That's what I want to do. It's necessary. Timothy had those things, but before he did those things, he was a brother and a servant. And he did it for eight years before Paul ever said, okay, Timothy, now go. I'm giving you something to do. And it's so important that that be the foundation for a ministry is that we are brothers and sisters and that we are servants and that we are fellow laborers in the gospel. See, it isn't through our talents and our gifts that we bring glory to God. Oftentimes, it's our talents and our gifts that rob glory from God because it brings attention upon us. It's not our talent that brings him glory, but it's our tenderness. It's our ability to love people, to love God and to love people, and to be able to give away the love of Christ, and that our talents are simply an avenue whereby the love of Christ and the fruit of the Spirit can be given away. And that's what Timothy had. Paul didn't send him because he was talented. He sent him because he was tender. That's why he sent him. Notice in verse 2, there at the end of the verse, Paul says, this is why I sent him to establish you and to strengthen you concerning your faith, or to establish you and to comfort you concerning your faith. The word establish there means to anchor, to firm up, and to stake in, like you would with a tent stake, to keep a tent from being blown away by the wind. So to establish you, to make sure that your roots are set in the right place so that you won't be moved away by your afflictions. And then he says to comfort you. The word comfort means to bring peace, to bring assurance, and to bring knowledge and understanding to you that you're in the right place. That the things that are happening to you are not indicative of God's judgment, but it's par for the course that you're in the right place. Now, if you've been with us as we've gone through the first few chapters of 1 Thessalonians, then you know by now that the work of the Spirit that was done in their midst was real and powerful. God moved. He did something that blew Paul's mind there, where Paul says, you received the word with much joy and affliction. It was, it was so supernatural the way that God moved in your midst and, and, and started the church that was there. It was real. It was powerful. However... The situation for the Christians in the city was very perplexing. They were persecuted. They were afflicted. They were facing tribulation and problems. They were facing contention from the Jews and also from the government. Every single place that they turned, there was affliction and difficulty in their path. And so, though the work of the Lord was real... 
There was confusion in their midst because of the things they were experiencing, the hardships, the difficulties. So, Paul sends Timothy, and in verse 3, he tells us what the message is. This is the message, Timothy, that you're to bring to the Thessalonians. And here it is in verse 3. He says that no man should be moved by these afflictions. For yourselves know that we are appointed thereunto. Here's the message, Tim. Tim. Give it to him very simply. Do not be moved by the afflictions that you're facing. Now, the word moved right there, it's a very simple word, and it means a change of location. It means to be shifted or uprooted or unseated, and it speaks of something being taken out of its place, its proper place, its designed place, and to be moved into another place. I remember as a young man, 17 years old, I got my first car, the first one that I actually paid for. It was a 1986 Oldsmobile Cutlass Calais. It was pearl white, and it had a couple of red rust spots for character, you know. And It cost 800 bucks. It had a five-speed transmission, a 2.5-liter quad-four engine. And, and for its time, when it came out, it was kind of the forefront of four-cylinder technology. And man, that was just such a cool car, and I was so excited I got my new car. And so I picked up a couple of my friends, and I went over to my new girlfriend's house, this beautiful young woman named Georgia. And I pull into her driveway there in Hilton, New York, and, and, and you know, I get, get there, and I'm proud of my new car, and I've got my friends, I'm picking up my girlfriend, and I set the parking brake, and I go, go out of the car, and I go to the door, and I'm thinking, okay, respectful respectful and responsible, respectful and responsible. And, you know, and I knock on the door and I'm waiting and, 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 and she comes to the door and her mom's not too far away. And, and, and I can't remember if I had met them before or not, or, you know, what they probably knew who I was, small town, you know. And, and so they come to the door and I'm being nice, playing Eddie Haskell, you know, to her mom. And, 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 all, and all of a sudden I see this horrific look on her face, as though she's looking right through me. And I turned around and I saw my 1986 Olds Cutlass Calais rolling down the driveway towards the garage. Friends in it and all, you know. And so oh, I, I panicked and I, you know, dropped whatever I had and I ran back to the car and I tried to stop the car. I grabbed the bumper of the car, fell with the car, and I'm being dragged along down the driveway as the car is barreling towards the garage doors. And sure enough, the car hit the cinder block partition between the two garage doors and knocked it right off the foundation. Talk about first impressions. <laughs> George's dad comes outside of the house. He, he looks at the car there under, you know, the rubble. He sees the collapsed segment of the house, and he says, there's three grand, and he walks back in the house, you know. And I'm like, you know, new girl, how's this going to happen, you know. See, here's what happened, is that, you know, the, 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 cinder block partition that was set in its place it was not designed to be moved that's where it was intended to be it was hit with an affliction 
my 1986 old Cutlass Calais. And the affliction came, and it collided with the cinder block partition, and it knocked it off of its foundation. It was moved out of its place. Here's the idea. This is what Paul is saying. He's saying that you and I, as those that belong to Jesus Christ, that we are in a position. We have been saved by the grace of God. We have been moved from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. We are children of the living God. All of his promises are yes and amen to us. All of his word, his promises are confirmed. His work is established in our lives. And he is committed to completing that which he began in us. He doesn't change his mind. He doesn't falter or shift. He's not moody and grouchy. You know, he, he saved us. And he's going to complete the work that we've begun. And that's the position that we are in. But that now, here comes this affliction. And this affliction, this opposing force is coming at us. And and the intent behind this affliction is that it's going to try to move us out of that place. It's going to take us out of the place where we're seated upon that position and try to move us out. Now, the position that we occupy is not a physical location. It's not even a hat that we wear that says, Christian, you know, I'm saved, this is my position. No, it's a position of faith. It's invisible. We are told where we stand and where we've been placed because of the blood of Christ. And we are called to believe it and we're to anchor or root into our position by nothing other than the faith that we have in what he said. Now, the block wall that was moved by the affliction of my Oldsmobile, that was not designed to withstand the affliction that it received that day. But us, unlike that block wall, we do have the ability to remain in our position and to not be moved even though we are hit with great afflictions, things that seem that they're way beyond, way above our our ability to handle. How do I know that we are designed to be able to hold our ground no matter how hard the affliction might be? Because Paul says right here, tell them, Timothy, that no man should be moved by this affliction for yourselves know that we are appointed thereunto. In other words, Paul is saying, tell them, and I'm telling you, you have an appointment with affliction. God is the bookkeeper, and you have an appointment. You and I have an appointment with affliction. He goes on and he says in verse 4, For verily, when we were with you, we told you before that we should suffer tribulation, even as it came to pass, and you know. We have an appointment. Now, there's two things that we know about this appointment that we have with affliction. Here they are. Number one is that that appointment is going to come. And number two, it isn't going to call ahead to remind you. You know, like they do at the doctor's office when you have an appointment. The time is going to come, and you will not be given a reminder, and you can be absolutely certain that affliction or afflictions or seasons of tribulation and trouble are going to come upon us as Christian. It's part of what we are. I think of what the Lord spoke when Paul the Apostle got saved there in Acts chapter 9. Paul gets saved and he's blinded. He's in the house of Ananias there in Damascus. And he's 
uh, a brother is sent to him. Actually, Ananias is sent to Paul, and he says, Lord, I don't want to go. I mean, we heard about this guy. He's bad news. He's killing Christians, and I'm afraid, Lord. And the Lord speaks to Ananias, and listen to what God says about Paul. Acts chapter 9, verse 15. The Lord said unto him, Go thy way, for he is a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Notice, God had a plan for Paul. He saved him, and he already knew what he was going to do. But, he goes on in verse 16, and he says, For I will show him how great things he must suffer for my name's sake. In other words, there was already an appointment with affliction that was in God's date book concerning Paul. And now Paul is saying to the Thessalonians and to us, is that we are appointed to go through seasons of affliction and tribulation and that we're not to be moved by these things when they come because it's just a reality. Now, some people are moved by the afflictions and the tribulations that come. Paul knew this. If it wasn't true, then he wouldn't have had to write. It's plain logic that some people, when affliction comes, they are moved out of the place. And here's what happens, is that you have a Christian that's been saved. They belong to Jesus Christ. And now, here comes this affliction, and it collides with the Christian. And if the Christian's faith is faulty, meaning that they don't really believe that they've been saved by grace, and that God is committed to them, and that he's going to complete the work, and that he knows all things, and that he's in control, and that he's working it to the good, if the faith is faulty, then they're moved by the affliction. If their roots are not in Christ, if they're rooted in something other than the person of Jesus Christ, in other words, maybe they're rooted in this idea that now that I'm a Christian, everything in my life is going to be easy. That I'm a king's kid, and therefore there are no more problems in my life. And that's where their roots are. Their roots aren't in salvation in the kingdom of God in heaven. Their roots are in something for now. Well, when the affliction comes, they're going to be moved because their roots aren't in the right place. That's not the kind of foundation that they're to have. Or, if a person doesn't know that they're appointed, that they have an appointment with affliction and with tribulation, sometimes even then, once the affliction comes, they're moved by the affliction that comes. Well, where is a person moved? When a person is moved, rocked, their location changes, their life is shaken, their faith falters, where do they move? First of all, they move from a place of security and assurance to a place of doubt. They begin to doubt and they say, well, maybe God doesn't really love me. Or maybe I'm not saved. Maybe there isn't, uh, maybe nothing happened. I I raised my hand or I came forward or I prayed a prayer, but but God saw that there was some fault in it or something. and, And now I'm suffering these things. And so maybe that didn't happen. Or maybe God is judging me for my past sins, even though the Bible says that he cast them as far as the east is from the west. But maybe, maybe my sin was so bad that he just has to give me some kind of retribution, and that's why I'm going through these difficult times. Or maybe I'm Esau. Maybe I'm the one who, for one morsel of satisfaction, sold my birthright, and now I'm anathema. I, I'm no longer in his favor. He doesn't love me anymore. No, no, no. Listen, you're not Esau. You're normal. Because everybody goes through afflictions in the Christian life. It's par for the course. 
Three times Paul has said thus far, you became followers of us. And he was speaking in the context of the troubles, the trials, the afflictions that he was facing and that now they were facing. It's normal for the Christian life. So some people are moved from security to doubt. Other people are moved to discouragement because of disillusionment. I think of that classic passage there in Matthew chapter 16 when Jesus asked his disciples and he said, Who do men say that I am? And they all gave their answers and Peter said, You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, Right, Peter. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. But my Father, which is in heaven, he revealed that to you. You're getting revelations from the Father, Peter. And Peter was he ruffled his feathers up like a you know, rooster and he kind of you know, shined up his medals and wow, yeah, I'm getting revelation. And I'm sure he gave a few winks to the other guys. You know, you guys got it wrong, but you know, you know who I am, Peter, you know. And then Jesus immediately began to talk to them about the cross. He said, the son of man must be delivered to the high priest and to the council and must suffer many things of the Jews in Jerusalem. And it says that Peter, who was on the spiritual high because of the revelation that he had received, he pulled Jesus aside and he said, no, Lord, not so. You can't say that. Not so, Lord. Those two things don't go together. But, But Peter did. He said, not so, Lord. You're not going to suffer. There's no cross. You're the Christ. Not cross. You're the Christ. And, and Jesus said, get thee behind me, Satan, because you savorest not the things which be of God, but the things which be of men. And then he said, if any man will come after me, if you want to follow me, then take up your cross. The cross was not an instrument of ornamented gold that they would wear around their neck. The cross spoke of crucifixion. It spoke of suffering. It spoke of torment. It spoke of affliction. And Jesus said, if you want to come after me, take up your cross and follow me. Now, Peter heard the words that Jesus said, but he did not embrace the truth that Jesus was communicating. How do we know that? Because a few years later, when Jesus was in the garden of Gethsemane, And the band of soldiers led by Judas came to arrest Jesus. Peter, at that time, tried to fight against the cross. See, Jesus wasn't fighting against it. He knew that this was par for the course, that this was coming. But Peter didn't want the cross. He wanted the crown. And so Peter drew his sword and he said, I'm going to fight against the cross. I'm not going to embrace this cross. There is no cross. You're the Christ and there's a crown. And that's what I'm going to fight for. And when Peter could not fight off the cross, when the cross came and the affliction came and it didn't go Peter's way, guess what Peter did? He quit and he denied Christ. If if there's going to be affliction, if there's going to be a cross, if it's going to be hard, then I'm going fishing. That's what he said. He denied Christ and he went fishing. He was disillusioned. He saw a Christ. He saw a crown. He neglected the cross. The message of Christ is that there is no crown without a cross. Judas wanted political reform. He wanted liberty from the yoke of Rome. And he saw Jesus as a means of bringing about those political changes that he had envisioned and hoped for. 
But when they didn't come, and once he saw that, hey, this isn't going to happen, he's talking about a cross, he sold the Lord and not just denied him, but he rejected him completely and said, I'm going to get this done no matter what it takes, not willing to embrace the cross. Disillusionment is thinking that you're going to get one thing, but then once the experience comes, it's completely different than what you thought it was going to be. And that's what those men were. They were disillusioned, and their disillusionment led to discouragement, which caused them to be moved from their place where they were to be seated and rooted in the person of Christ. The same thing happens in the lives of God's people every day. They think Christianity is a bed of roses. They think that it's always going to be easy, that there's never going to be a trial, that everything is just going to be a constant upward climb and without any problems at all. And when the problem comes, they're disillusioned, they're discouraged, and they defect. So doubt, discouragement caused from disillusionment, and then thirdly is disobedience. People are moved from that place of believing, that place of faith, they're moved to disobedience. Well, if he's going to treat me this way, I gave my life to God. I tried the God thing, and look what he let happen in my life. And so I'm going to go get bombed. Or I'm going to go sleep with 16 people. Or I'm going to eat 1,000 Big Macs. Or I'm going to spend $20,000 because I'm going to get comfort some way or another. Because he's not giving it to me. He's letting all these things happen. And if he could see me, then he would fix these things, and he doesn't see me, so I'm just going to do what I want. And they're moved to disobedience. People are moved because of the afflictions that they face in all of these type of things. Now, there's a big elephant in the room right now. You know, that thing that everybody's thinking, but nobody's saying. You're painting a very dismal picture of the Christian life, Nick. You're, you're making it sound like we all should put on somber faces and wear black and we should just walk around in heaviness and, and that this is just some difficult thing and that we should live our lives in fear that this great affliction is coming. But you're not answering the question that we all have, and that is, why? Why? Why are we going to suffer affliction? Why do we have an appointment with difficulty and tribulation? Why? Is it because God... Is, is saying that we have to pay our dues? That we have to, you know, give back a little for what he's given to us? Or maybe he's a sadistic father and he just wants to see us squirm and this is just some test that he knows that we're going to fail? It, what? Why? Why is it that we're appointed to these difficulties, these problems? Here's why. Because first of all, the afflictions that we face, the tribulations and the trials that come towards every single one of us, they work to deepen us. They deepen us. If we're not moved away when the affliction comes, the affliction will work in us to make us deeper. Look at what happened to the Thessalonians. Look in verse 6. He says, But now when Timotheus came from you unto us and brought us good tidings of your faith and charity and that you have good remembrance of us always, desiring greatly to see us, as we also to see you. Therefore, brethren, we were comforted over you in all our affliction and distress by your faith. I skipped verse 5. Look at verse 5 quickly. He says, For this cause, 
Because of the tribulation, he says, When I could no longer forbear, I sent to know your faith, lest by some means the tempter have tempted you, and our labor be in vain. That's that's the reference to the moving, the places where people are moved. And then in verse 6, he says, But now, when Timothy came and brought us good tidings of your faith and charity. Notice this, is that they were going through afflictions, they were going through trials, but instead of being moved out of their place, they actually grew. Instead of being shifted into a place of doubt, a place of discouragement, a place of disobedience, they actually began to bear spiritual fruit. They had faith, they had charity, and they had a desire to grow spiritually for Paul and them to come back and teach them more. They weren't moved by their afflictions. They were deepened by their afflictions. How does that work? Proverbs chapter 17, verse 3 says this. It says, the fining pot, or the refining pot, is for silver. And the furnace for gold. But the Lord trieth the hearts. The comparison is being made by the the wise man, by Solomon. He says that the refining pot is made to purify gold and silver. And just like the refining pot purifies gold and silver, so the Lord purifies or tests or deepens the heart. It's the same type of thing. Well, how does that work? See, what you would do is you would take the raw materials... The silver ore or the gold ore, the the thing that was freshly mined, that was mixed with all types of rock and other minerals, but it was gold. And you would put it in the refining pot and then you would turn the heat up. And you would bring the heat to a place where the gold was in a great deal of pain. In fact, it started to melt. It began to lose its composure and it would just begin to become, you know, liquid and lucid and it it just lost all of its integrity, all of its strength and it just becomes this massive molten affliction, literally. But something happens when that molten state takes place. Is that that which is pure and good and valuable sinks to the bottom and that which is waste and rubble and corrupt floats to the surface so that it can be removed. Skimmed off the top by the expert refiner who knows how to get rid of the dross but keep the gold and the silver, the purity at the bottom. And he says that that's the same way that God works in our life. And it is the same way. See, here's the thing that people don't understand. The trials that we face... The tribulation, the affliction, the difficulties, those things don't make us or break us. The trial itself does not make us or break us. What it does is that it reveals what's inside of us. That's what the trial does. See, Job, here's a man that God said, man, there's a lump of gold. He's a righteous man. He loves righteousness. He hates evil. But Job went into the refining pot. And God turned up the heat. And if you know the story of Job, you know, man, he went through a trial, an affliction that none of us can hold a candle to, even in our deepest difficulties. And what was revealed about Job in that refining pot is that there were some good things in there. He said, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That's good. He said, though he slay me, yet I will praise him. That's good. There were good things. But there were also some things that were not good in there that came out during the trial. There was a whole lot of self-righteousness in Job. 
And there was a whole lot of self-pity that was in Job that comes out during the time of his trial. We read about it in those 30-something chapters where he's just blubbering and complaining and claiming that he has no right to be going through these types of trials. Self-righteousness, self-pity. Now, at the end, all of that stuff was at the surface and Job was able to see it clearly and then repent of it and be set free from it. Those things were taken out of his life. But the trial didn't put those things in Job. The trial revealed that those things were already in Job. The self-pity, the self-righteousness, it was already there. And God was seeking to bring it to the surface. People come and they say, I'm just bitter. I'm, I'm full of this bitterness. I'm bitter. And I'm bitter because that person did me wrong. No, no, no. You're not bitter because that person did you wrong. The bitterness was already there. And what that person did to you brought it out. I'm just angry. I'm I'm just filled with anger because of this, because of my parents and the way they raised me or because of the place or because of this. No, 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 no. See, afflictions don't have sin in them. People have sin in them. And the affliction just reveals it. It brings it to the surface. Why? Why is God seeking to bring these things to the surface? Here's why. Because he's a refiner and he wants to remove those things from our life. 1 John chapter 1 verse 9 says that if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all righteousness. The word cleanse means catheterize. It means to remove it from us. And so when the affliction comes and the dross is revealed, that bitterness or that lust or that idolatry or the covetousness or the hatred or whatever it is that comes out when the affliction comes, God is doing that on purpose to bring those things to the surface. And then we have two choices. We can either repent of it and say, Lord, this is sin. It's wrong that I have this. And the Bible says that if we do that, he'll cleanse us from it. He'll he'll sweep it off. Or, and this is what most people do, sadly, is that they don't repent of it, but rather they just excuse it. They justify it. They blame somebody else for it. And what they're doing, essentially, is they're saying, no, 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 that's not dross. Let's just stir that back in. Let's just get a spoon and we'll just stir that right back into this molten sea of gold that is actually what I really am, you know. And, And we'll stir that back in. That's not really there. And God says, okay. And he lets it cool off for a while and the impurities, you know, meld right back into that block of ore until the affliction comes again and those things come to the surface. See, his will is that we would repent of it and be free. He wants to deepen us. And so the afflictions aren't designed to destroy us. It's not dues that we're paying. It's God working in us to bring forth the character and the nature of Christ. They don't just deepen us, but they also serve to develop us. Look at verse 7. He says, Therefore, brethren, we were comforted over you in all our affliction and distress by your faith. We were comforted from our affliction and distress by your faith. For now we live if you stand fast in the Lord. For what thanks can we render to God again for you, 
for all the joy wherewith we joy for your sakes before our God. Here's what Paul's saying. He's saying that we are actually being comforted because of the trials and the afflictions that you're going through. We are actually being filled with joy because of the comfort we're receiving by seeing you stand fast in your trial. In other words, their afflictions were helping them to serve others. Their afflictions weren't about them. Their afflictions were about someone else. Paul wrote to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3-5, through 5, and listen carefully to these words. Paul writes and he says, Blessed be God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort them which are in any trouble by the comfort wherewith we ourselves are comforted from God. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also aboundeth by Christ. That when we are afflicted, when we suffer, the reason for it is so that you can be comforted. Because as we are fathered, by God in the midst of our affliction. As we are comforted, as we grow, as we get wisdom and experience, and God does all of those things in our lives that he does when we go through seasons of suffering, those things actually turn around to benefit and bless you. Because now we've experienced a few things. We've gone through some suffering. We've gone through some trials. And therefore, we have something to give away to you. A.W. Tozer said these words, and there's a lot of truth in them. He said that before God can use a man or a woman greatly, he must first wound them deeply. And there's a lot of truth in that. Because it's through the wounds that we endure and through the sufferings that we bear and through the experience with him that we have when we're in those times, that's what enriches us and gives us something of value to give away to others. You say, well, that sounds sadistic. He's going to wound me? I mean, is that what I'm looking for? No, no, listen. He will hurt us, but he will never harm us. That's not his intention. His ways are only good. And the things that he allows to happen to us and he allows to come into our lives serve to work and to bless and to give to others the comfort that we have received from God when we go through those things. It's our sufferings that make us useful and so they develop us. Now, there's one more thing that Paul is going to give, a final reason why we go through afflictions. But first he prays for them in verse uh, 10. He says, night and day, praying exceedingly that we might see your face and might perfect that which is lacking in your faith. The first thing that Paul prays for them is that they might be able to come back so that they can perfect that which is lacking in their faith. The word perfect there doesn't mean make them perfect. It means to make them complete. To make up that which is lacking. To establish their foundation in an even greater measure. Paul prays that they would be perfected. Then in verse 11 he says, Now God himself and our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way unto you. Not only that they would be perfected, but that they would also be reunited That somehow God would make a way for Paul and his company to come back to Thessalonica and spend time with them, fellowshipping with them, living amongst them. And then thirdly, 
in verse 12, he says, And the Lord make you to increase and abound in love, one toward another and toward all men, even as we do toward you. The highest mark and characteristic of the Christian life is love. Love for God and love for people. Agape love. Unconditional. And he prays that they would abound in it, that they would grow in it, and that they would experience it in their fellowship and towards those that are not in their fellowship, that they would love people. That's Paul's prayer. And then in verse 13, he gives to them the third reason why we go through afflictions and troubles and difficulties. He says, To the end that he may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before God, even our Father, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. And here it is. And this is the the reason, and it's the ultimate objective of our Father in all things, is that we would be established and prepared for our destiny. The third reason why we go through adversity, why we suffer affliction and tribulation, is because God is using those things to establish us and to prepare us for our destiny. The thing that he designed us to be. I think of the first, the very first interaction that the Apostle Peter had with Jesus. Andrew, Peter's brother, brought Peter to Jesus by the Sea of Galilee. And he said, come, there's something about this guy. You've got to meet him. And there in John chapter 1, we have the first interaction between Peter and Jesus. And it tells us there in John chapter 1, verse 42, it says that Jesus beheld Peter. And the word beheld there, it, it means that he saw him or examined him through and through. That he discerned him. It wasn't just that he looked at him and made facial recognition or eye contact, but it was deeper. It's a word that means that he looked, he peered through and through Peter. He saw all that he was in that instant. And after looking at him, beholding him, he says these words. He says, thou art Simon, but you shall be called Cephas or Peter or, it says by interpretation, a stone. He looked at him, he saw what he was, and then he said this, this is what you are. You are Simon. The word Simon means shifting sand. I don't think there's anything more unstable or unworkable in all the world than shifting sand. And yet Jesus looked at Peter through and through, and he said, that's what you are. You are an unstable man. And hey, we can say amen because we follow Peter for three years and he was a mess. But Jesus didn't stop there. He said, you shall be called Cephas, or Stone, or Rocky. You know, that's where my son gets his name, by the way. You know, trivia, you know, whatever. But the first time that Jesus ever looked at Peter, before Peter had even walked a single day with the Lord, Jesus looked at him, saw what he was, and at the same time, saw what he was going to do. He saw what Peter was, and then he saw what he was going to do. Now, Peter had no idea 
what he was going to go through in the years to come. The storms, the trials, the afflictions, the failures, the embarrassment, the foot and mouth disease, the persecutions, the imprisonments, the mockeries, the denial of Christ, the restoration. He had no clue that any of that was going to happen. But fast forward 14 years into the future to the last time we see Peter in the pages of Scripture. Acts chapter 12. It's the night before Peter is appointed to die. It's the night before his execution. He's bound in a prison, and the next day he's going to be killed. James was already killed, and Peter's head was coming on the chopping block next. What do we read when we see Peter there in Acts chapter 12? It says that he was sleeping so soundly between those two guards that the angel literally had to come and smite him just to get him up enough to get him dressed and free him from the prison that night. What would you be doing if you knew that tomorrow morning your head was going to be chopped off because of the gospel? I I wouldn't be sleeping. This man who was unstable who was unreliable, who in every way was everything that we don't want to be, this man, 14 years walking with Jesus, the work that the Lord had established in his life, it was being completed. He had become Rocky. He had become Peter, Petros. He had become the thing that Jesus set forth to make him. Why? Because Jesus always accomplishes that which he desires to do. Philippians chapter 1, verse 6 says, He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. He knows what he wants to do in you, and he knows how to do it. My summer project this year is I'm rebuilding the deck in the back of my house. And when we moved in there, I mean, that thing was disgusting. I mean, it was filled with moss, and it was dilapidated, and the boards were rotting, and it smelled, and it literally had graffiti on the posts, you know, and we would walk down the stairs, and every couple months, we had to replace one, because they would just break right through, you know, and, you know, half break someone's neck, you know, I mean, the thing was just tearing down and dilapidated, it was falling apart, but even though that was the current condition, I still bought it, I still said, I'm going to buy this thing. Not because I liked it, but because of what I knew I could do with it. And so I looked at it, and and just looking at it, before ever doing anything, I already knew what I was going to do with that deck. And so I came up with an idea. And then I drew a plan. I drew drew it out, drew a picture of it. And then in my mind, I went through the steps, and I figured out how I was going to do it, and what steps it's going to take. And I thought to myself, man, this is going to be beautiful beautiful when I'm done with it. And so I took my sledgehammer and I began to knock things down and break boards and rip out foundations and, I mean, rip it off the house and the whole thing and all of its ugliness was, was, was there a pile of rubble. And here's what happened is that that which was ugly and dilapidated and broken down got worse. <laughs> if you came to my house, you would say, are you sure you know what you're doing? Because this doesn't really look like you really know what you're doing. You know, this, listen, if my deck could talk or if my house could talk, do you know what it would say? Why are you doing this to me? 
This, this, I, I, was, I had a problem before, and now I really got problems. I'm a, I'm a pile of rubble. I'm on the ground. You've exposed all of my vulnerabilities, all my weaknesses. Everything is just, it's just, I'm just nothing. Look at me. There's holes in the ground. The, the, the siding is falling up. You've made it worse. Look what you've done. My kids come to me, and they say, uh, Dad, um, <clears throat> how are you going to do this? How, how are you going to make this? How, how? And they have all these questions. You know what I say to my kids? I say, listen, if I tried to explain it to you, you wouldn't understand. But I know how to do it, and it's going to be great. Listen, the Lord has called each one of you. He's called each one of us. Before the first day that we ever knew him, he already knew what it was that he was going to do. He saw the finished product from the very beginning. You say, how is he going to take this mess, these problems, and turn it into something beautiful? How is he going to do that? Because when I look at my life and I see the pile of rubble that it is, and in many ways it's worse off than it was before the first day I ever came to him, how is he going to do this? How is he going to change this? Do you know what the Lord would say to you? Here's what he would say. If I tried to explain it to you, you wouldn't understand but I know what I'm doing and I always complete the work that I begin. And so here is the word of the Lord tonight. Let no man be moved by these afflictions for yourselves know that we are appointed thereunto. But he is indeed working all things together for good. And no matter what the trial is, no matter how deep the waters are, no matter how big the pile of rubble or the impossibility of the circumstance or the situation, he is using it to deepen you, to develop you, and to prepare you for your destiny, the thing that he has made you for. And his word to you would be James chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. Count it all joy, brethren when you fall into diverse temptations or trials or tribulations, it's all the same word. Knowing that the trying of your faith worketh patience, but let patience have her perfect work, that you may be perfect and entire, lacking nothing. He's going to complete what he began. The affliction isn't forever. But let patience have her perfect work. Amen? Father, we thank you tonight for your holy word. You say unto us that your ways are as high as the heavens above our ways. And that they're past finding out. That though we lived a thousand lifetimes, and though we had all understanding, Lord, your wisdom is so unsearchable we would never see. But we rest in the fact tonight, Lord, that you declare that all things are working together for good to those that love God, to those that are called according to your purpose. We rest in the word that you who began a good work, that you'll be faithful to complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. We rest in the promise that you give to us, that of those that have been given to me, I will lose none. And I pray that tonight, Lord, our roots would sink deep, not into a promise of a primrose path, but in the promise that we've been saved from our sins and that we belong to the King 
and that you're going to bring forth that which you desire. And so I pray, Father, that you would fill us with faith 